Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jacob Lieberman. Jacob is a visionary in the area of light, vision, emotions, and consciousness. He has written several books, including Light, Medicine of the Future, Take Off Your Glasses and See, and Luminous Life, How the Science of Light Unlocks the Art of Living. Steeped in the incredible fields of vision science and optometry, Jacob took on a new perspective in his studies and practice when he resolved long-standing issues with his own eyesight. This experience led him to experiment with a variety of simple, natural and effective life-changing therapies with tens of thousands of individuals he's worked with throughout his entire career. He is a recipient of the H.R. Spittler Award for his profound contributions to the field of phototherapy and is also the inventor of the iPort Vision Training System, the only FDA-cleared medical device clinically proven to improve visual performance. My conversation with Jacob was absolutely amazing. I sensed immediately that I was speaking with someone who carried an incredible amount of wisdom and humility. Uh, he is so kind and generous and genuine. Uh, our conversation centered around the less tangible aspects of eyesight and focused more on the philosophical territory of vision and consciousness. I sensed that Jacob's longs and fruitful career in the cutting edge of vision and light had led him to a point where he realized that nature is filled with so much awe and creativity that sometimes it's better not to analyze these questions from a materialistic framework, but rather from an experiential one. His considerations and thoughtfulness in discussing these topics uh, made me realize his wisdom and honesty. Uh, I had an absolute pleasure talking with Jacob and I learned so much. I sincerely hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Jacob. Thanks so much for talking to me today. I've uh, really been looking forward to this. Um, I'd love to um, get an idea about how you got into uh, vision and and looking at the eye um, as a as a part of something that you really wanted to dig deep into. Well, such an interesting question. Um, when I was at university and even before, uh, several of my closest friends were wanting to become dentists. So that seemed like as good a profession as any. So I applied to a major dental school and I got accepted. Um, I needed to complete three more courses to be able to get in. I was getting in early as it was most people get in after four years of university and I got all my requirements in only two years. And, uh, but there wasn't a way for me to complete these courses over the summer. And um, I went to visit a friend in a part of the US and we're driving down the street and I see this sign for an, a college of optometry and something said, pull in. I don't know why. And I walked in, to make a long story short, I met with the admissions person. Uh, I explained to him the situation with the dental school and they had the same requirements except they only required two courses rather than three. I took them 
They accepted me on the spot. And that's how I got there. I have no idea. Then I started realizing that I'd had vision issues my whole life that were that made it very difficult for me to concentrate and to read for long periods and thus to do in school. And so in 1971, well before your parents even thought about you, uh, I was having problems in my medical training. I was sent to the clinic. They gave me stronger glasses. Uh, they recommended I do some vision exercises, which I never did. I stuck this little piece of equipment in the corner of my room. One day I was doing my homework and the same thing happened that happened every time I sat down to read, I fell asleep. And when I opened my eyes, first thing that caught my eye was that device that the student doctor had given me. I picked it up, I used it for four to five minutes and then I read for a whole hour with perfect concentration. It was so amazing, I started crying. Because up to that point, I thought I was stupid. And all of a sudden, literally, a light went on. I did these exercises a few minutes a day for two months. And then I made the Dean's List every single quarter for the next two years, which is the top of the class. So all of a sudden I realized that vision and eyesight were two separate things. And so that got me through school. And when I got out of school, I started working initially with kids that had the same kind of problems that I did. I worked with thousands of them. And then I started working with um, athletes, high level athletes, Olympic athletes, pro athletes, uh, finding unique ways of having them find the sweet spot where performance became effortless and where a person could literally uncover their own genius inside, just like what had happened with me. And, uh, and then in 1976, I started experimenting with my own vision because I'd been wearing glasses for years and I wanted to see if I could improve my own eyesight or reduce the fact that I was wearing glasses all the time and could only see the big E on the eye chart when I took my glasses off. And, and I had a, a miraculous experience. I was in the midst of meditating and I had what people today would call an out of body experience, but let's not make it mystical. My eyes were closed and yet I could see everything in the room. Something was able to see what was in the room, including myself sitting there. And everything was crystal clear. I don't mean just optically. You know how sometimes you get into a place where it's like everything in the world is clear. So there, the mind is, has no questions or anything. It was like that. And I sat there 
And when I came out of this meditation and opened my eyes, everything was crystal clear. Not only was it crystal clear, I realized that when I was meditating, whatever was seeing was in physics, they would call it non-local. Whatever was seeing seemed to be seeing from everywhere simultaneously. Now, that's a very difficult thing to, to, to speak about because it's not logical. I'm looking at you on the Zoom screen and you're looking at me and I know I'm over here and you're over there. But in everyday reality, we don't have the feeling that I'm here and I'm there and I'm everywhere. We just don't have that experience most of the time, but that was the experience. And to make a long story short, my eyesight improved 300%, but this is the interesting piece, with no changes to my eyes. So here I was nearsighted, I had a significant amount of astigmatism, and those optics, at least I was taught, determine your ability to see clearly or not. So the optics distort the vision. This is what I was taught. But in this particular situation, the optics didn't change. But I, whatever I was, was able to see clearly. Now, if that had lasted for five minutes, you would have said, oh my God, that's absolutely miraculous. But it's lasted 44 years. I'm going to be 74 in November. And I have never worn a pair of glasses on my face since that day. I get examined every year. I am no longer nearsighted with a large amount of astigmatism. I'm now farsighted with even more astigmatism. It should make it even more difficult for me to see, especially up close, but I don't wear glasses for reading or for distance or anything. So the experience allowed me to realize that our whole concept of how things can change is actually opposite of the way they actually change. Because we equate change with work. You got to work at it. You got to try harder. You got to look ahead. All these different things. So we go to a gym. We lift weights. Our biceps grow. We don't go to the gym, we don't lift weights, the bicep gets smaller. So you have to keep doing it, but that isn't the way the body works or anything in this universe for that matter. The workings of the human body and the workings of the universe define the word economy, which means you invest nothing and you get everything. That is what really con ultimate economy 
is a zero energy machine. And that is essentially the way the body works and the way mother nature works. And yet all of our laws have to do with trying harder. And what I discovered in my work is that the trying was actually impeding the learning. That in trying, you actually put a wrench in the works. You get, you literally block your own effortless possibility to discover something which is life-changing, which is how the hell is this happening? Because we spend all day in a process that we call thinking. And thinking sounds very intellectual and so on. But if you examine the content of what you call thought, you will immediately see that almost all of your thoughts are actually worries. That they're not this intellectual process. They're actually what goes on when we get frightened that because we don't trust that whatever comes out may be exactly what's required. Even though we look at mother nature and our our whole entire body and the whole thing works miraculously. We don't even know how it functions. So in the process of my own vision changing and offering me an entirely new view of reality, I've come to see that things don't work the way we think. In fact, nothing works the way we think. And you'll say, what? What do you mean by that? Well, if you look up the word thinking, you'll see that it is synonymous with thought, idea, theory, concept, hypothesis, belief, and many other words. If you then look at the antonym of that same word, you discover something amazing. The opposite of belief is truth. Whoa. Here we thought, we thought, and we've been conditioned to believe that the thinking process is the way we uncover truth. But truth means the opposite of thinking, which means it is when the thinking stops that what we're looking for jumps from the tip of our tongue into reality. So I came into vision through many of those experiences. And then in the 80s, I realized that I had uncovered some things that were way beyond things dealing with vision. They were things that dealt with effortless learning. They were things that dealt with what it truly means to see and what is it that is actually seeing. And things about light that were just unknown at the time. And so the inspiration I had was 
to share this. I have to go out and I have to share this because this is important stuff and people need to know this. And so I sold my practice in the mid 80s, took a couple years off, started working on a first book, which was Light Medicine of the Future. And then started speaking and going around and meeting people. And then that led to a second book, Take Off Your Glasses and See. And then a third book, Wisdom from an Empty Mind. And then the very latest book called Luminous Life, How the Science of Light Unlocks the Art of Living. And so I share all those things because at the end of the day, we're all looking for the same thing. We used to call it health and happiness. What we're looking for is a life of health and a life of contentment. Not just happiness, but take it a little further. Contentment. I am content with the nature of affairs in my life. And having tasted that state, Initially, every so often, as they say, once in a blue moon, and then having it um, embraced my life so that it was something that wasn't coming and going, but something that to one degree or another was always there. And uncovering the exquisiteness of ordinary life. I'm not talking about, oh, the person is enlightened and, you know, no, no, no. I'm just talking about a simple life. Just having a life where you have reasonably good health, you have a great deal of love in your life, most of most if not all of your relationships actually work that you actually are not competing with each other but cooperating with each other so that is what my life has become about and essentially where it has taken me is in working with people on a mentorship basis where I help them in whatever way I can help them to try to share whatever I can that can improve the quality of their health and contentment. And I'll share one more thing. I don't do that with techniques. In fact, I don't do anything. Here's an example. Somebody reaches out to me. Their name is Cameron Borg. I have no idea who Cameron Borg is, but they reach out and uh, my assistant says, I got this and immediately I get a yes. I don't even know what it's a yes to. I just get a yes. That's what it is. 
So my assistant contacts you and we set up this call today. We've never seen each other. You think you know something about me. I think maybe I know something about you, but we start this conversation just like every conversation that occurs in our life with someone we've never met. A question comes up for you. You don't know where the question came from. And then an answer comes out of me. I don't know where the answer is coming from. And within a couple minutes, we merge together into one. You and I both disappear as separate entities and all that occurs is that the universe in some way is creating a message moving through us that neither one of us is aware of and we don't even know where it's taking us. That is the way that I interact with the people that grace my life, that contact me. There is no teacher, there is no student. Both parties are exactly the same height. We're just two people on a journey and we happen to find each other. I don't know how because I never advertised my services. So the whole thing is sort of magical and maybe that's the the bright light, the spark that I'd like to share with you is that this whole process is absolutely magical. And if we can, if, if we are fortunate enough to recognize the magic, wow, our whole life uh, begins to uncover more magic and more magic. And then we realize we don't understand anything. And yet we are really enjoying the, the journey. So that's a long answer to a short question. No, that's, that's absolutely beautiful. I'm glad you, I'm glad you took the time to um, go through all of that. I think it's really important. Um, you made the distinction between uh, vision and eyesight there. Um, yeah. That's not a distinction I, I often hear, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how emotions and your, your, your whole life experience impacts the way that you see and experience the world. Okay, that's a big question. So let's just, you go to the eye doctor or maybe you're going to school and the school nurse says, well, we're going to check your eyes. So they put a chart 20 feet away and they say, cover one of your eyes. What's the smallest line you can read? Cover the other eye and so on. And that lets you know whether your eyes are seeing the expected level or better or not quite as much. So that's eyesight. It's just a mechanical process. The eyes are direct extensions of the brain. They're not like a separate organ. They're two frontal satellite dishes that connect the outer world with the inner world. And if they, 
if they do that in an exquisite manner, which in the East they call a satori, a kick in the eye, then the outer and inner world merge. There's no outer, there's no inner. There is just the middle. A state of isness, presence. So vision takes that mechanical process of bringing information in. It, it is brought in through four primary skills. The first one is aiming. What is aiming? Something in the outside world is looking for us and it catches our eye the eyes automatically turn toward that which is calling them. They turn and they aim. When they aim, that suppresses the noise going on from all the information around you. And that creates, that is the process called presence, which we sometimes term attention. But attention is presence with tension. And presence is effortless. So attention actually creates stress. Concentration creates stress. Presence, totally effortless. Something is just responding to that in the world which is catching our eye so that it effortlessly lets us know what is the next step in the journey of our life. So that's aiming. Aiming occurs simultaneously with tracking. The eyes move toward the object, so that moving is called tracking. While aiming and tracking is going on, so is focusing. As the eyes converge to look at something, they automatically focus. And focusing creates the expression, I see. But we think of focusing, we think of making something clearer. But let's take it a step further. The clarity, the I see, is synonymous with I know. Why is that important? Because there is no intermediary in there that says, what is that? There's no thinking process. The process itself leads to I know. It's effortless. The knowing occurs by itself without doing a damn thing. And that is so critical to us because we're addicted to working on things that require no work. And then that movement of the eyes turning, aiming, and tracking towards something is called teeming, binocularity. What does that have to do with? Well, in the optical field, they would say, oh, that leads to three-dimensional vision, depth perception. <clears throat> but the Bible, 
has a statement. It says, when thine eye be single, then you shall enter the kingdom. Not when you're seeing with two eyes, but when the binocularity becomes singularity, it opens a door. And that door in the East is called a satori. It's an opening of what they say is the third eye, the mystical eye. And then you end up in a, a, a very, very different state. So that's a little bit of a difference between the mechanical process of eyesight and then the process of vision, which brings about presence, clarity, and non-duality. Wow. When you think about that, Presence, clarity, and non-duality are, are, in essence, the foundations of what people call awakening. So within the process of vision is the process of awakening. As an example, I <clears throat> have a client that I was working with yesterday who has one eye that turns in slightly. And um, so she essentially just uses one eye at a time. And I said, what's your, the biggest challenge in your life? She says, God, I have so many creative ideas, but I can't bring them together. And I said, that's exactly why we're doing this. Because you have two eyes that cannot seem to bring it together. But right after that, she got her eyes to work together. Just that awareness caused something to open up. So vision is uh, very profound. It is inseparable from awareness at the highest levels, And so I speak of these things as being essentially the same things. Yeah, right. That's um, that's beautiful. I love how you've you've brought vision in as not something that's that's physical. It's something that's more than that as well. Um, um, I, I just want to make a quick remark. Mm -hmm. So you said I like the way that you brought in. And this is really important for whoever's listening today. I didn't do anything. I, I really, it's really important that everybody gets that. All of our trying cannot create poetry. But if we can, if we're able to disappear temporarily, then the poetry of divinity comes to us. What you are hearing is just a flow of energy. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know how it creates itself. And I wanted to clarify that because <clears throat> this process is not about us as individuals getting someplace. 
it's about just uh, allowing what is natural to occur. Trees grow exactly how they should grow. Some create fruit, some create shade, some have thorns, some sway, some don't. They don't do anything. Something guides every aspect of their life. And the same thing occurs in the animal kingdom. Animals basically walk or swim or fly in some normal pace. They don't exercise by running. They only run when something catches their eye, which is called the next meal, or when something catches, is looking to catch them. So, and that's not work. That is just a response that is equivalent to the demand. The animal, you know, when it's got to get out of the way, it just needs to run fast enough to get out of the way of this other creature. And if it needs to run faster because it's being chased by a cheetah instead of something else, you'll see that it runs faster, but it doesn't decide to run slower or faster. It's just the body is always functioning in its maximum potential by responding precisely in the way that it needs to. So when we speed up our movements, the heart gradually speeds up and then it gradually slows down. It doesn't start going at the fastest beat it can when you just have to go a little bit faster. I mean, these are all miraculous processes and that's the point I'm trying to bring home that it's hard to speak about these things because they don't fit into logical models. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm I'm glad you you stopped me there. That's that's really um, that's really key, and it makes me makes me think of Bruce Lipton's work straight away, who I know um, did some praise for you for your latest book. Um, oh, I know I know Bruce for 30, 35 years. Wow, yeah, I I love Bruce so much, and um, I think. Do you, do you see an intersection with his work and and your uh, your ideas of, of vision? Um, you know, how do you think beliefs um, interact with the way that we we perceive? Do you, do you think that people thinking, "Oh, I need glasses to see," is a self fulfilling prophecy? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, <clears throat> What you're really asking is, how is reality created? And today, the big expression is, I create my own reality with my thoughts. First of all, most of us are not even aware of the thoughts. The thoughts are coming and going continually whether we want them to or not. None of us can control them other than for a few minutes. The, the 
in my latest book, I speak about some neuroscience uh, research, some very high quality gold standard research that really looks at <clears throat> are we the ones that are creating this? Do we have this thing called free will? From my life experience, my experience didn't lead me to a yes on that. And so I can remember in 1984 uh, doing an evening presentation that I call the high price of free will. Because it wasn't actually free. It required a lot of efforting to try to crank life or to um, steer life in the way we wanted it to go. The real question is, does life give us what we want or does it give us what we need? I've always found that it gives me what we need. And most of the time we don't like it. So we have a lot of experiences that are not very pleasant. And after the fact, we say, wow, hindsight is 2020. I can see why I had to do that. But that basically says that we don't see what's going on in the moment. Why is that? Is it because we create our own reality, but we don't see it? Or is it because something else is happening that is totally out of sight? All the neuroscience would say that it's all in the unconscious, that these are unconscious processes that are going on at quantum reality, at the speed of light. So somebody says, um, Cameron, would you like chocolate or vanilla? And you say, uh, I'll take chocolate. But if we look at your brain, you would see that your brain chose the chocolate even before the choice was given. How is that possible? Are you saying some part of me is here and some part of me is in an aspect of reality that has yet not even occurred? So when you ask a question like, am I creating my own reality with my thoughts? It's such a simple idea. I'm driving the car. If that was the case, we would all be aware of everything, but we're not. It's all a surprise. Nobody knows when they're gonna get into an accident. Nobody knows when they're gonna win the lottery. Nobody knows when they're gonna fall in love. Nobody knows when they're getting a, a diagnosis they didn't expect. So, From my experience, and I will say my direct experience, not just an experience in life, but so many multiple experiences that I've had, I realize that the source of the creation is at a level 
that I don't see it. And I'm totally comfortable with that. Now, if you're not comfortable with that, then you try to make it happen. Because you, you want to change the channel. I wanted something different. But you see, if you're content, then there's no need to control anything. There's no need to make anything happen. So there's only a need to get what you want if you're not already getting what you want or enjoying what's there. So for me, I enjoy living choicelessly. I enjoy not knowing. So many times people contact me and they want to do an interview and they say, can we send you the questions? Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't want to know ahead of time. Then it takes the fun out of it. It takes the authenticity out of it. You know, every moment of life is an original, not a copy. It's an original. An original is priceless. Why do anything to try to create a perfect copy? It's just a copy. So trying to make things happen is like having the answers in advance or thinking you do. And then you realize the teacher was actually smarter than you and gave you a different version of the test. Um, people speak about these things, the law of attraction, creating my own reality. Um, obviously you've looked at these things. Have you ever met anyone that you know without a doubt has successfully mastered this? No. Neither, neither have I. In fact, I've never even found anyone that's close. In fact, the people that I have found that seem to really be in a lovely place in their life, they don't even waste their time with these ideas. So, I'm not saying that there isn't anything to that. What I am saying is those particular ideas are meaningless in my life personally. But if they are meaningless in your life, then they have meaning for you. And so there isn't a right or a wrong. It's sort of like, um, are you married? Are you married? No, I'm not. Okay, so let's imagine that you were, and uh, you met the partner of your dream, and the moment you saw them, you fell in love with them. It was just, it just took you over. Now, let's imagine you took your 10 closest friends, and you lined them up next to you, and they were all gazing on the person you just fell in love with. Do you think they would all fall in love with them? No. Well, which of them is right and which of them is wrong? They're all right. Right. 
Exactly, exactly. So why do we have to say, oh, I'm for this, or I'm against this. I'm for free will. I believe that I create my own real. Belief is virtual. Follow your direct experience. If your direct experience is that in some way you have a hand in what's going on and you know, you figured out a way to make it better or whatever, fantastic. If it's working for you and you're content and you're having a good life, I applaud you. Someone else is having the same effect and not having those things, I applaud them also. I guess the point I'm making is, whether it's my dear friend Bruce Lipton or Amit Goswami or Deepak Chopra or any of these people who are all absolutely brilliant and all doing this for the same reason. They are inspired to share something that is meaningful for them. That's what's really important. There'll be millions of listeners for one person Deepak's message will resonate for another. Bruce Lipton's message will resonate. It isn't that one is right or wrong. It's just, it's like tuning forks. Ding! If it, if it resonates, it resonates because something inside of you already knows that. You may not be aware of it, but you already know that. So, we may be speaking about the same state and we may have different ways that we have found can bring us there. Yeah, that's what I, sh what I share with people is not my way or anyone else's way. What I share with you is trust your inner guidance, trust your GPS. Trust the part of you that said, gee, I think I'd like to talk to Jacob Lieberman. Because that was the same part, and it's not even a part of you. That's the same place that said to me, oh, yeah. <laughs> See, that place has no point of view. It's just totally clear. And it guides. And that's the source of our seeing. It's not that we're seeing from the eye or from the mind or from the brain. There's something behind all of that, a final set of eyes that sees with no point of view. There's a, uh, there was a wonderful sage 1600 years ago named Sengston, and he said, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, listen to this, when love and hate are both absent, the world is clear and undisguised. Make the slightest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, hold no opinions for or against anything. To hold what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. Now that's just the first verse, but you can see the depth of it. Look at the truths in that. 
So that's what's moving me. Yeah, it, it seems as though there is great beauty and power behind letting go and just surrendering your, I guess, the things that you can't control. Um, and yeah, there's, there's just so much, so much power and so much direction you can get from that. Um, let me, let me add something to that. You can't let go and you can't surrender. These are processes that occur when everything that was holding has held as much as it can. So when you find yourself at the edge of a cliff and you're holding on to some branches, nothing in you is going to let go. You're going to hold those branches with every ounce of your being until you either pull yourself up or your hands slide away. If you start, if your head is pushed underwater, every ounce of strength that you have and every ounce of strength that you're not even aware of will try to gasp for air. And it will do that until it cannot do that any longer. So why am I jumping into this? Again, when we speak about these things, it sounds like, well, if you, if you just let go, just let go. But you know, our hand is designed to do something. It's not designed to do this. It's designed to grab. This letting go you speak of that's a whole different process that occurs again from a place much deeper. And why it's important to speak about it is you cannot try to let go. The reason one is holding is because it is perceived as life or death. And so that holding goes on until something just makes it go. And it is in that process when you, the holding can't happen any longer, that that's the transformative moment. Because, but you literally have to go through death to have that awakening. And no one, no one volunteers for that. There is no volunteer. Oh yeah. Let me be the first one to jump off the cliff. So, Again, these um, ideas are very difficult to speak about because we always speak about them from the perspective of, of duality, do something. But these are non-dual uh, foundational aspects of life that we can never get to non-doing by doing. That's uh, that's really wonderful. I'm 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 glad you added that in. Um, speaking of transformative uh, experiences, I'd love to hear a little bit about your work with color therapy, um, syntonics, and visual fields. Um, so, uh, in the mid '70s, I was introduced to a science of using different portions of the light spectrum to treat vision conditions and learning issues. 
And those different portions of the light spectrum are the things that we perceive as color. And so it was basically a cookbook approach that said, if you have this problem, do this. If you have this problem, do that. And one of the things they notice is that when we're under stress or we have trauma, we see less, we remember less, we function at a lower level because our view of the world narrows, what you call the field of vision. And so the application of light of different wavelengths, again of colors, through the eyes would often expand the field of vision and give the person a new view of reality. And it would augment the visual function. <clears throat> and that's in a very, very brief sentence what syntonics is. Syntonics is from the word syntony, which means to bring into balance. Okay. In life, there really is no balance. There is no homeostasis in life. There's homeodynamics. Things are moving toward balance and then out of balance and then toward balance and so on. <clears throat> what I discovered about using light of different wavelengths or colors through the eyes is it doesn't work again the way we think. Uh, we have a cookbook. Uh, red is excitatory, blue is sedative. Well, that sounds logical until I hook you up to physiological monitors and I give you red light and that's supposed to get you excited and increase your blood pressure, but it does the opposite. Huh? Then I take your brother or sister and I do the same thing with them and they get all excited. Which one is right or wrong? The same thing with blue. I tested these things in the late 70s and early 80s. And although I saw some general trends, it wasn't a pure science. It was just an idea. And we have to watch out for those ideas. So what I started noticing is that everyone responds to color, but their response is the same way all your friends would respond to the person you fell in love with. It's an individual thing. The response is not related to the color. It's related to the individual's relationship with that vibrate, vibratory rate. And that's different for everyone. So what I discovered is that, to make it brief, the colors we're comfortable with have to do with the portions of the life's experience, which is an energetic or vibrational experience. So the colors we're comfortable with relate with the aspects of life we're comfortable with. The parts of life that we say, oh, that was wonderful. And the colors that we say, oh, God, I, I, I hate that color. The allergic reactions we have to certain colors are equivalent to the allergic reactions we have to certain people. Ooh, God, who could be with that person? You know, ooh, my back grows up just being around them. So colors we like 
have to do with things that we can easily digest and colors we dislike have to do with aspects of life that perhaps are unresolved. And so that's the basic premise. When I started applying these colors, I started realizing that the things that are unresolved are also not what we think they are. So everybody says, oh, you know, I've got this issue because my father beat me when I was three or my parents were divorced when I was so-and-so, yeah? But we have no idea when this pattern originated. Human beings have been here for multiple millions of years and we are just the current state of evolution. We are the sum of all the generations that have evolved before us. So where did it originate? you will never know. So don't waste your time with it. You're just never going to know. And if you think you know, the only thing that's happened is you've made a deposit of another idea in the bank of the mind, which is just gonna clutter things up even more. We just don't know. So for me, trying to figure out what's going on, <clears throat> I don't care about that. I use colors to help people desensitize from the habitual triggers that transform their life from ease to dis-ease. And so color is an integral part of my mentorship work with people where I send them a kit that I have created that they use at home for a certain amount of time each day where they're merely looking through a pair of filtered glasses and in that way filtering their experience and just noticing how it impacts them and doing it for just homeopathic doses, tiny amounts. We don't want to push anybody's buttons. We don't want to confront anyone. We don't want to make you uncomfortable. Why? Because it just causes you to get more bound up. So we want to work by invitation only. So my work with people is very gentle because what I'm trying to invite is an opening from the inside out. It's like when you're working with a human being, it's like working with a very fine piece of jewelry. You don't use a sledgehammer. You have to work with it. So that's one of the most important things I've learned with people. And the other thing is, I can't really help people with anything that I haven't actually gone through. So, you know, for me to, oh, I read this technique in a book, I'll just try it. That could be helpful. But it's my life's experience that gives me the license to be able to say, oh, I've been there. My heart goes out to you. So... Those are some of the things, and color is a very powerful piece, and 
the what I've noticed is not only what I said about the colors we like and dislike or are comfortable or uncomfortable with, but the colors we're uncomfortable with are also related to the functioning of the chakras that have those same colors. How do I, why do I say that? Because I've noticed that for the last 40 something years. I didn't read about that. I just started noticing this pattern after working with tens of thousands of people. And so that is what's important for me, what I've seen over and over and consistently, consistently, consistently. What I think doesn't matter. What actually occurs, that's what matters. Wow. Well, yeah. Um, I guess you do forget how many people you've worked with, or at least I, I hadn't considered tens of thousands is, is a lot. And I think experience is oftentimes more important than uh, what you read in a book, you know, it's going to, it's going to tell you a, a hell of a lot more. Um, I, it's humbling. Yeah. Experience is humbling because when you've gone through the dark night of the soul, you would never say to someone, I just, just let go. Because you know that when you're having a panic attack and I went through those for six and a half years, you know that the only thing that's there is you're sure you're going to die. So experience humbles you. It makes you ordinary. It, it, it develops a, a sympathy, empathy for another human being. Um, it, it allows you to have been in their shoes to some degree. And from that place, you would never approach it from a sense of, arrogance or self-importance it's just with a total sense of humility and gratefulness for that moment yeah that's uh that's such a beautiful way to finish i i know i know you've probably got a, a lot of things to be doing uh for the rest of the day so i'll i'll i'd love to finish that there because that's a beautiful sentiment to to end on so um i'd like to just thank you so much for lending me some of your time i've i've learned so much from you and uh, I hope everybody, everyone listening has also learned. I have learned a great deal from you because what we call good answers or good responses only come from equally good questions. Thank you. And, and so the questioner and the answerer are that source beyond all of these things that we're aware of. So I'm grateful for all of that. And I, I'm, I thank you so much for uh, reaching out and uh, let's do this again sometime. I would absolutely love that. Yeah. Uh, me, me too. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, I've been organizing a lot of new guests uh, in the last few weeks, so make sure you keep up to date with the podcast and all the other work that I'm doing. Uh, you can find me on social media using at Richie Flow Nutrition. Uh, I'm also offering my consulting services for anyone who's struggling with complex health issues and needs some foundational health advice that you may not get from any other of your conventional practitioners. Uh, so once again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. Take care.